So welcome to week two in this series called Spiritual Practices. As we've been learning in our church over the last few weeks, and actually over the last few years, if spiritual gifts is the guaranteed place of power to serve from like Jesus did, then spiritual practices, if you are genuinely a follower of Jesus, a Christian, is a guaranteed place of transformation and hearing. Uh, let me remind all of us again, spiritual practices don't make you a Christian. Spiritual practices don't get you the relationship with God. They actually don't even impress God, but they are the very activities, the things that place us in his presence so we get to be transformed and we get to hear what we're called to do. They bring health in a relationship we're already in. Now, now the first practice that we're going to start walking through today is the act or habit or discipline of prayer. Now, most people around the world pray in some form. In the month of March, researchers were watching globally as the COVID-19 crisis skyrocketed. As the pandemic increased, religiosity went through the roof tremendously. Google searches on prayer skyrocketed for most countries in those four or five weeks and grew the most as new COVID-19 cases actually were announced. So people turned to prayer in the moment of desperation and fear. So in this time, but actually in all times, we must learn and lean into the great gift of talking to God. But, but the questions we need to wrestle down today, whether again, you're a seeker, a skeptic, you're spiritual, you're a, a nothing in a spiritual sense, you are a Christian or a brand new Christian. Well, who are we praying to and why pray? And, and is there a way how to pray? Well, well, first, let's just clarify this. Prayer is just talking to God. It's communication with God. And prayer, as we'll find out today, and as you keep going deeper in this, is a two-way conversation between creator and the created. But let's start specifically here. Years ago, an author named Dallas Willard wrote this about Christians. He said, the open secret of many Bible-believing churches is that a vanishing small percentage of those that talk about prayer and talk about reading their Bible actually are doing what they're talking about. Now, the good news here at Sanctus Church is prayer is happening exponentially in multiple places at releasing prayer and elders prayer and after service prayer when we gathered together and 24-7 prayer and on and on it goes. And yet there is so much more room for us to grow, to start, to deepen, to be with God in his fullness. And of course, prayer is at the heart of the Christian life because the Christian faith is not a set of morals. It's not just dead religiosity. It's a relationship with a living person. Now, if we're going to learn how to pray or go deeper in the prayer life we already have, if we truly want to encounter the one that is both holy and love, we all need to go back to the basics, to the beginning. We need to go back to the most famous prayer that this week alone has been uttered in multiple languages and by billions. It's what we affectionately call the Lord's Prayer. Now, within this small prayer, the upward, inward, and outward moves of grace are found in condensed form. And there, by the way, are two versions of this prayer found in the Bible. One's found in the Gospel of Luke. One's found in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, it's in Luke's account where we find one of the most important requests before we get to the Lord's Prayer. It reads like this in Luke 11.1. 1. Uh, one day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. 
And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. And then in that moment, under the power of the Spirit, Jesus simply outlines the heartbeat of prayer and invites us, broken, sinful, distracted, questioning, yet faithful people, into the relationship he shares with God the Father himself. See, Jesus heard the request, teach us to pray, and he answered with crystal clear clarity by giving us the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew's account, which is found in the Sermon on the Mount, is a longer version. So if you've got a, a Bible virtually or physically, could you turn over to Matthew chapter 6? It starts in verse 9. This then is how you ought to pray. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How does the prayer begin? Our Father, Jesus, by the way, said that God was his father 14 times in the book of Matthew. And he says that if you're a Christian, you now have the same ability and same relationship to say the same thing. We have been invited into the same relationship Jesus had. Our father, notice this, our father implies there's relationship already. In other words, the Lord's prayer is a prayer for those who are already in relationship. How do you gain relationship? How does God the Father become God our Father? Only through the one teaching us how to pray this. Only those who have accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord and believed what he claimed and believed he physically died and physically rose from the dead and he has the right to say anything because he's king. Only those who are born again have God as Father because they are the ones who have accepted Jesus and he's the only one that shows us the Father, makes us right before the Father and allows us to stay in God the Father's presence. That's why Jesus said these most, these most profound and yet offensive words, but they make sense if you understand who Jesus is when he said in John 14 6 he said I am not a way he said I am the way I'm not a truth I'm the truth I'm not one part of life I am life no one comes to the father except through me this prayer reminds us right up front who God really is God at his core is relational Understand this. I've preached this before. We need to recapture this again. Father, by the way, is a name of God. For some, the image of a father is so unbelievably hard because maybe our dads were broken or our dads were not what they were called to be, and that's fair. The pain and damage is real. But this name is so important, and you can't change this name or tamper with this name because of pain or expectations. Change the name of God and change the one you begin to connect with. So this, for many, could become a moment of healing or a place of redemption over a broken thing. One wrote this, the Hebrew scriptures normally depict God not as a father of an individual, but a father of people, Israel. Pious Jews, in Jesus' time, aware of the gap between a, a holy God and sinful human beings, would never have dared address God as Abba, the Aramaic word for daddy or dear father. So Jesus shocked so many of his contemporaries by referring to God as his Abba. 
and then invited his followers to call God Father too. In other words, God is Father, which means God is personal, and God is tender, and God is grace. Now, the most powerful, the most jaw-dropping, the most life-changing expression of this name is found in one of Jesus' stories, what we call parables. Many of you know it as the prodigal son. It should be called the prodigal son's where a young son goes to his father and says, give me my inheritance, which in that culture, which was a way of saying, I wish you were dead. And the father, shockingly, instead of taking out his son in that culture, gives him the money. And the son, a young teenager or 20-something, off he goes, and he says he wastes all the money on sex and parties and cars and a great house. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, and then what? It all runs out. And he's ruined and all his friends disappear. And it says that it's so bad that he's starving and he's feeding pigs and he wants to eat what the pigs are eating. And then it says he came to his senses. And Jesus tells this profound story where he says, I, he, the son decided I want to go home and maybe my father will no longer consider me a son, but at least he might take me as a slave. And in the message form of this, this is how it reads in Luke 15, 20. So the son got up right away and went to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. The father's heart was pounding, and the father ran out and embraced the son and kissed him. And the son started his speech, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned against sin before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. But the father was not listening. The father was calling his servants, quick, bring a clean set of clothes and dress him. Put the family ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Then get the grain-fed heifer, roasted. We're going to have a feast. We're going to have a wonderful time. My son is here, given up for dead and now alive. Now, in Jesus' story, the father represents God. And, And listen afresh to what one expert in Middle Eastern culture wrote about this story. The father, he writes in Jesus' story, failed to act like his listeners would expect. Instead of waiting at home for this terrible son to come crawling back as any dignified Middle Eastern father would have done or would do today, the father in Jesus' story keeps a lookout for him. As soon as the father spots the son, he runs towards the son and throws his arms around his wayward son, showering him with kisses. But there's more. Traditional Middle Eastern men wearing long robes never run in public, then or now. To do so would be culturally deeply humiliating because you're never supposed to expose your legs. The father runs knowing that in doing so, he will deflect the attention from the community away from his ragged son to himself. People would start focusing on the extraordinary sight of a distinguished, self-respecting landowner humiliating himself in public by running down the road, revealing his legs. God runs, God moves, God guards, God forgives, God welcomes. This is what it means when we read God is Father. Yet, as we've already heard today, though God is love and God's love is unconditional, that means it is open to anyone, it can only be experienced conditionally when we come to the Father, that, is, that we repent, but you still have to come through Jesus. Jesus is the only way home back to Dad, our Father who's in heaven. 
When we pray, we draw near to God himself. We enter into that holy place where angels fear to dread. Every time we pray as a Christian, because of Jesus, we enter into God's holy presence, Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, notice, by the blood of Jesus. You will never access God the Father's presence without the blood of Jesus of Jesus. You need his covering to enter into a holy space. And right when we entered that holy space, Jesus says the next thing, the very next moment, the first direct cry of your prayer life must be this, hallowed be, notice, your name. Let your name be holy with all the angels and all those who are already in your presence. We cry out, you, not us. You must be treated with the highest honor. Now, did you catch it? The prayer starts with imminence, the closeness of God, yet after we're brought so close to God, knowing God is Abba, that is Father, dear Dad, then that moment is transcended into transcendence, into the grandeur of God. There is only one who deserves to be lifted up. This prayer reminds us we are not God. We're only made in the image of God. We are never made to be God. There is no one greater than God. Real prayer is the willing act of saying with joy and gratitude and hope, I am not God, I don't need to be God, God, you deserve all my respect, I'm willing to give you my love and I adore you and I'm devoted to you. No one else or nothing else should ever be worshipped except you, God. This is the place where we admit, I'm a creature, you're a creator. I have a beginning and end, you don't have a beginning and end. You're the potter and I'm the clay. The, cre- the creator has the final say over everything. It's actually agreeing with God's own declaration in Isaiah 48, 11, where God says, I will not yield my glory to another. This is why, by the way, prayer is not self-help. This is why, that, why real prayer is not mindless meditation or a slowing process or a psychological reclaiming moment. This is not self-realization. Real prayer is other-centric first and then us second. It's humbling, it's freeing, it's true. It's in that holy place, in that reality, in, the, in that atmosphere, before the one that is uncreated where we ask God the next thing. Would your kingdom come? Uh, We need to pause here. Uh, I've taught this many times before at Sanctus, but let me do this again. What is the kingdom of God? Because, by the way, Jesus said the one thing he brought on earth was the kingdom, so we should really know what it is. The kingdom of God is not the nation Israel that you can visit today. The kingdom of God is not the church, our church or any church. The kingdom of God is not a country It's any place or space where the reign and rule of the true God is welcomed and accepted through Jesus. When you became a Christian, if you are one, you became a member of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God moved inside of you because you accepted Jesus as savior and Lord, that is king. One day, of course, when Jesus returns, all things will be under the reign and rule of God. But in this moment, only certain places. And when we as Christians pray this, we're saying we want more and more of him and more and more of what he is about down here. In other words, what's happening perfectly up there, we want more down here. I want your kingdom to come and I want, notice, your will to be done down here on earth in my life as it is in heaven. When you praise this, you are asking not to lead your life, not to be in charge, 
You're actually choosing to lay down everything to Jesus and actually saying, I'm a slave to Jesus. As Jesus, here's the critical thing, ready? As Jesus obeyed the Father perfectly and modeled it, he was the incarnation of the kingdom, so I want to look like him more. It's what Paul wrote in Romans 6.22. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Years ago I preached this. Let me do it again. Christian, if you are one, I know not all of you are, but for we who are listening right now, hear this and accept this and embrace this. You are a slave to Jesus. You're not your own. You've been bought with a high price. Obedience is the key to liberation. True freedom comes from slavery to Jesus. When we live our life with this one all-consuming perspective, I'm a slave of Jesus, then actually I become absolutely loving and free. But if you don't live with this one view of God's love and ownership, you will not live a radical. You will not live an authentic. You will actually begin to start living a powerless Christian life, a cheaper version of our faith. When you pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's what you're praying. I want your will in my thinking. I want your will over my money. I want your will over my sexuality. I want your will in my relationships. I want your will in my family. I want your will in this local church. I want your will in my future. I want your will in my dreams. And if my dreams aren't your will, I want your will, not my will. I want your will to form my worldviews. I want your will to actually form and inform and change my politics. I want your will and understanding in my theology. I want your will to have a stronger say in my view of myself, in the view of my family, in the view of my neighbors. Oh, even in the view of my my enemies. When you pray this, you're saying, I don't own my house. I don't own my life. I don't own my savings. I don't own my family, my dreams, my health, my wants, my future. It's all for God. And since he's a better master than I will ever be, your will be done, not mine. Anyone getting nervous yet? I mean, we've just started. Anyone saying amen on chat yet? Or maybe some emoji where you're like, oh no. Oh, then... This leads us to the next moment. The next request is give us this day our daily bread. Oh God, would you provide our physical, emotional, and spiritual needs? This, of course, has its roots in the Old Testament when Israel, God's people, were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness and they didn't have a proper access to food and water. And God, every morning, sent them what we call manna, bread from heaven, to feed them. Every day for 40 years was a miracle. Here's the, the root verse. It's Deuteronomy 8.2. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. In Jesus' time, food was a daily thing. You didn't go to Loblaws and pack up for two or three months in the freezer. It didn't exist. You bought food every day. And in most cases back then, too, you were paid every day, so there was no security. You got paid every day, and you had to work every day and buy your food every day. In other words, God, I need your manna every day. God, I'm going to ask for my basic needs, clothing, shelter, and life, godliness, what I'm facing today. This prayer said so simply, 
Again confronts, though, the idea that I'm the master of my destiny, that I can deal with my life, my family, myself. This prayer moves a human from self-trust and self-sufficiency to trusting in God and calls for utter dependence on him for salvation, life, godliness, everything. This is where you talk to God. You just stop and you tell him what you're going to face today. Here's the good things, the bad things, the neutral things. This is where you should list your fears for the day and your, your, your failures maybe or your hopes. You should literally walk through your schedule with God. And notice, it says for today. There is a call for many of us to slow down at any time, but especially this time, and to live today. Not bound by yesterday and not always living for tomorrow. Lord, what's your will today? What's your provision today? Nothing more. By the way, this is not only the place in this prayer where you list your schedule and talk about your needs. This is where you also pray for others. You pray for your daily bread, but you pray for other people's daily bread. This is where you move from what we call petition, asking God for something, to intercession. This is where all Christians stand in the gap in an environment most human beings don't have access to, and we stand in the gap for the rest of the world. I've quoted this so many times before, but I love it. Richard Foster's definition of intercession. When you move from partition to intercession, you're shifting the center of your gravity from your own needs to the concerns of others. Intercessory prayer is selfless prayer, self-giving prayer. Here's where you stop and you pray for others, our country, friends and family that don't know Jesus. You pray for your enemies. This is where you stand in the gap for all those things. Uh, when I was in high school, I was trying how to learn how to pray for my school. I went to Pickering High School and I was trying to learn how to pray for my friends and actually my enemies and my teachers and my youth group. And, I, and so I came up with this idea. I just, at 16, <clears throat> I got a box. And I wrote down the name of every person that I could think of in the box, my parents, myself, my youth pastor, people in my youth group, uh, friends at school, enemies at school, and I literally had this box. I called it the prayer box. And at night, what I would do is I would literally shake the box and say, Holy Spirit, who do I need to pray for today? And I'd pull out between three and five names, and, and I'd pray for them. And what struck me, within 24 hours, almost every single time, the person I'd prayed for or a situation I'd prayed for suddenly came up. Uh, let me just encourage you maybe to use this. I've taught my two older daughters to do this. They both have prayer boxes with similar things. And almost every night at devotions, they shake their prayer box and say, Holy Spirit, who do you want me to pray for? They now, at 10 and 12, are learning the gift and the place of intercession. Well, did you catch it? From relationship to security to worship to asking for the impossible to willing slavery to request for our needs and standing in the gap for other people's needs. Now Jesus looks at us. He looks at you. He looks at, at me in the eyes and says, no one comes into my father's presence through me without being honest about sin. You must daily say, forgive us our debts. Maybe you've heard the word trespasses. Our lives are marked by transgression. Debt, trespass, iniquity, sin. All of us have missed the mark. All of us have slipped and fallen away. All of us have fallen aside. In thought, word, deed, we regularly and, and deliberately and by mistake violate God's will and God's law. We trespass. We go to places we're not allowed to go. We have debts we cannot repay spiritually. We all struggle with sin. Or as another person said, sin is the act of choosing to go our own way and leaving God out of the picture. 
So in this prayer, we're invited to and commanded into the practice uh, 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 the spiritual discipline of confession. Now, I'm going to preach on confession next week. All of next week is going to be talking about how that's done regularly. But here's how one person just wrote it. Confession is sharing our deepest weaknesses and our deepest failures with God and trusted others so we may enter into God's grace and mercy and experience his ready forgiveness and healing. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, and by the way, it's a daily prayer, we are called to list our sin every single time. And here's the beautiful thing. I love that last definition, his ready forgiveness. First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from some, all, some unrighteousness. No, all unrighteousness. There is nothing so gross, so putrid, so dark, so horrifying that Jesus will not forgive it. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. Can you type in amen right now, please? Can you say amen in your living room or wherever you might be? There is nothing gross enough. There's nothing perverted enough that any of us have done where Jesus is not willing to forgive it. Confess our sins, our debts, our trespasses. But then Jesus comes close and we want his closeness. And yet he said, well, you've prayed for my father's kingdom to come. And you've experienced my forgiveness. That's why you're here in the first place. And you've listed your sins. But oh, now you must also forgive the debts of others. As God has done for you. And has just done in this very moment. Through the work of Jesus. Now you must extend that to other people. God's forgiveness comes first. And then we're moved to do the same. Is this a process? Oh yes. Must it begin? Oh yes. This prayer continues to move us to see what we've done to ourselves and others makes us begin to see our inability, our lack of not wanting to forgive. Yet God wants our joy and freedom. So invites us, notice, through his power to forgive other people. Remember, forgiveness is not forgetting. There are so many things that have happened to all of us. We'll never forget them. So can we never forgive? No, no. That's not even from our side. That's from the pit of hell or some bumper sticker that's not helpful. Forgiveness is not forgetting. And forgiveness is not lack of justice. Forgiveness is a choice. It's a crisis of the will. It's giving up your rights to God to hurt them back. As one person wrote, forgiveness is assuming the personal responsibility for the emotional pain and consequences of another person's sin. Is this natural? Oh no, not at all. Will it take time? You betcha. Must we be willing? Yes. Is this a process where you can just start and say, I don't even know how to do this, but Lord, I want to begin the process? Yes. Is forgiving others the radical reflection of God's love towards us? Yes. God says one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful expression of the kingdom we're praying for is forgiveness. Then Jesus says, oh, now we've covered all that. Oh, now pray this. Lead us not into temptation. This is saying God rescue, God protect, God intervene. Now, some of you are saying, why would God lead me into temptation? Is that what Jesus is teaching? Oh, no, no, no. Jesus' half-brother clarifies that clearly in James 1, 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. Oh, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt. Tempted and tested, by the way, are the same word. God tested Abraham. God tested Israel. God tested Job. 
but this is temptation to sin. Temptation, by the way, comes from within us. Our own fallen hearts, our own spiritual disposition makes us ready to give in this into sin. And the world and the demonic just work hand in hand. As one wrote, Satan persuades, the flesh is attracted, and the mind consents. So what is Jesus teaching us to pray here? Well, it's very similar to one of the standardized Jewish morning and evening prayers that reads like this. Bring me not into the power of sin and not into the power of guilt and not into the power of temptation and not into the power of anything shameful. In other words, when I prayed this and I prayed it actually as I was driving here today, here's how I pray it. I say, God, you know what I can't handle. There are good things and great things I want, but maybe if I get them, it will bring shame or disgrace or ruin. So actually, would you stop me from the good things and great things I want, but would you also stop me from the temptations of sin and other things? Just Lord, have mercy and guard me. Lead me to holiness, not to sin. And then Jesus says, oh, and by the way, we end with this. Deliver us. Notice, not from evil, the evil one. Lord, save me from the enemy of our souls. Oh, whether you believe in Satan's existence or not, he's real. Your unbelief doesn't uh, mute him or stop his existence. He and his minions are real. And the real world, capital R reality, looks like Ephesians 6.12. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. The devil hates you. Every fallen angel hates you. Every human being, no matter how religious or unreligious they are, they hate us. Why? Because we're actually made in the image of God. Every time they see a human being, they see their enemy. But they hate Christians even more because we're filled with the spirit of Jesus and we're members of the kingdom. So every time the demonics see you, they are filled with a hate that is beyond anything natural. They hate the local church. They hate the Bible. They hate anything godly. See, spiritual warfare happens every single time we bring the kingdom of God, the reign and rule of God on earth in any form. When people love the poor in Jesus' name, spiritual conflict. When you deny what you want and you say no to sin, even though you really want it or you feel you should do it and you don't do it, spiritual warfare. Anytime their kingdom is replaced by the other kingdom, they want to stop it. They hate the reversal of their kingdom. They want to see this church destroyed and every church destroyed. They know the local church is the hope of the world. They know that we as Christians have the only message and know the only person that can remove Toronto out of their hands. So what do they do? Well, they come and they, they, they prod and poke and say, you should doubt God's goodness. And, he, and they accuse us of our sin and they show us our struggles and they bring up our past sin and they bring up our present struggles. And they say things like Jesus doesn't love you and they point to what we don't have. And then they'll point us to everything else that someone else has. Oh, they'll attack your identity. They'll whisper and infer that you're not a saint. <laughs> you don't have grace. You don't have peace. You're not included in Jesus. You're not blessed in the heavenly realms with Christ. You're not seated with Jesus. You're not chosen. You're not foreknown. You're not adopted. You're not a son of daughter of God. Look, look at your life. Look what you struggle with. I know what you think about at 3 a.m. You don't have redemption. You don't have forgiveness. You're not sealed by the spirit of God. You don't have eternal security. You're not God's possession. You're spiritually dead. You need to give in to sin. We own you, they'll say. Jesus isn't strong enough. He's not going to provide in this terrible moment. No, no, you need us to be strong or safe or be okay. 
They'll try telling you you're not saved by grace alone. They'll say you need to work harder and be more religious and God will like you. They'll say other things like you're garbage, you're nothing, you're stupid. Or they'll say, oh, you're so good and so amazing, so profound. You don't need other Christians. You don't need to go to church. You don't need God. They'll promote bitterness and rage and anger and malice and unforgiveness and sexual morality and harsh speech and lying and stealing. And they'll say you should do those things and it's okay to do those things and it's your right and it's needed. When you hear it like that, you just go, oh my goodness, Jesus, deliver me from all of this. Unless you show up and deliver me from that, I fall. I fall. How do I use the Lord's Prayer personally? Well, when I used to come to this facility every day, which seems like an eternity ago now, probably six weeks, this is the one of three parts of my devotional life. And so when I would drive to work, I would pray the Lord's Prayer. And this is how I use it. I'd literally start by worshiping God. Hallowed be your name. And I'd tell him who he is and why I appreciated it. Things like your sovereign or providential or holy or your community or your love. I'd thank him for everything I, that was good in that day in my life. I'd pray for his kingdom. And in that moment, I pray for the kingdom of God in my wife, my three children and myself by name in different ways. I'd invite the kingdom of God into our family. Uh, and, and, and pray specifically for me. I pray a lot about love. And then daily bread, I'd list my schedule. I'd list everything I was going to face that day and other needs, but they tended to be more family needs. Uh, later, because of my rhythm at lunch, I'd stand in the gap for others. Uh, and then I'd confess my sins from the le- yesterday and that morning. Uh, usually I've sinned by that point. <laughs> How about you? Uh, I usually sin before coffee. Uh, and then I try to think about anything that people have sinned against me. I pray about things I really want or I'm scared of, and I ask that God would deliver me from temptation, and then I ask God to deliver me from the evil. And it's just a very simple way, but I break down the prayer, and every day, and sometimes I'm excited to do it, sometimes I'm not. I did it today, and it's just a really helpful thing and, and way of praying. Maybe in your connect group this week, you want to talk about do you use it and how you use it, or even right now, uh, for you who are online and chatting, do you use it? Do you want to write that in right now? Uh, when's the last time you use it? Maybe you can even share with one of the pastors online. How do you tend to use this prayer in this moment? Why is this prayer so profound? Well, it deals with pride, idolatry, forgiveness, pain, hiddenness, hard-heartedness, and evil. The prayer leads us to God's will and exposes us and heals us. The prayer focuses us into light. It reminds us that we're actually not God, invites and commands us to be slaves to Jesus. The prayer uh, gives us comfort because God's going to provide our needs. The prayer frees us of our own sin and our own past and the sins of others. The prayer outlines what reality really is. The prayer is a plea for the not yet to come into the now. The prayer is a guaranteed place of transformation when you pray this. He will answer this and you won't be the same. The prayer is nothing but an invitation to relationship, freedom, joy, faithfulness, worship, having heaven come down into earth, into your family, into this church, into this region, into this country, into this world. You say, well, okay, John, what's the response as we get going? Well, again, we've got a lot of time in our hands or we have very little time in our hands. No matter where you're coming from, we both need to do this. Here's the first response. Very first thing you need to do today. When is the last time you said to Jesus himself, teach me to pray? I think if I sat with most Christians, most Christians have probably not said, Jesus, teach me to pray. Prayer one. Prayer two, 
Start using the Lord's Prayer every single day. It's a daily prayer, and Jesus taught us. So you want to say, well, what's, what's the application? Start doing it. Uh, if you want to go deeper and wider, some of you have been praying for years. You might not even have the gift of intercession, but you've prayed for years. And you say, uh, is there anything else? Yeah, well, let me just show you a few resources, and we're going to do show and tell real quick here, but it's going to be helpful. A book that we hand out in this church all the time is Richard Foster's book, Prayer. And this, this book, 21 different styles and emphasis on prayer. We just, we love it. It's exceptional. We'd encourage you to get it, to grow in your prayer life. Another one that I read last year, a simpler one, is actually called Praying the Bible by Donald Whitley. And again, just how to use the Bible prayers in your prayer life. It, really good. Uh, there are two podcasts that we did historically when we were called C4, but they will be really helpful. One of them was How to Pray. And we walked through all of Paul prayers, just like we did with the Lord's Prayer today, and it's an amazing series, how to deepen your prayer life. Go to the podcast. It's all there. It's free. You can use it. The other one I'd really encourage you to go back to and listen or listen for the first time is the one called On the Psalms, Let the Light In. We walk through every single style of psalm and then how to pray them. And remember, the psalms is the worship. It's the hymnal of the church, and it's also the prayer book of the church. And so if you want to go beyond the Lord's Prayer, uh, these two books or those two podcasts are really going to help. So this is the beginning of it or the middle of it for us. So let's just take a moment and let's pray together. Our Father who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Uh, Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And then we'll add this because it's in some translations. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And everyone said together, amen. God bless you this week as you begin to grow and explore the most amazing place of relationship and world change, the spiritual practice of prayer.